Um, but as we're going to recap and highlight a little bit, you know, Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the opener to the, chap- or to the book, uh, to the chapter here in, in, in chapter 5. This is Paul setting the groundwork. Again, like we said before, Paul is starting to craft what is the bud of the story. He's starting to give us just a little tight picture of where the story will bloom into They moved on into verse three as a highlighted verse. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations or that we exalt in testing times when things get hard because we know that the character of Christ ultimately will come forward. You know, Paul kind of makes this list there, boast in my temptations or my testing or my trials. And in the end, he says that there'll be hope that won't be put to shame. That as we're tested and we're pushed through and character is developed in our heart and our life, eventually it exposes more and more of the life of Christ and that hope in Christ won't be put to shame. Then in verse eight, Romans chapter five, verse eight, my favorite verse in the entire Bible, but God demonstrates his love towards us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Again, exposing more and more of the story that while we were far from God and enemies towards God, that he actually came, sent his son to die for us, even in that sinful state. And then verse 13, for until the law, excuse me, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law, this idea that there was lawlessness when the law wasn't fashioned, so it was kind of hard to, defini- to differentiate and define what is sin, but sin was still there. Sin was still in operation. Why is that important? Because verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression or the sin. For if by the transgression of the one man many died, how much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God of one man, Jesus, abound to many. So this idea that we are free from the penalty and we are free from the weight of sin because of what Jesus did. Now that's a quick recap of where we went in the last couple of weeks. So we want to start off today with maybe a difficult question for some of you, for some of you, you math heads out there, maybe you'll get this right off the bat. If you have to go back to some of your trigonometry or algebra, I don't even know where this comes from, calculus days, If you remember the equation or the sign for infinity, right? There's a sign that represents the number infinity, a number that keeps going and going and going. But if you take a finite number and and you subtract that from infinity, like 10,000, let's subtract 10,000 from infinity, what is the answer? It equals what? Infinity, there we go, a couple of people got it right off the bat. So you can't take something away from something that's infinite and expect there to be a loss, that loss is covered up by the infinite nature, the infinite nature of the sign, of the symbol, of the number that is infinity. In fact, this is written very well in our respect to God in the fifth verse of the song, Amazing Grace, and it says this, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That there's an idea of the grace of God, of the presence of God that is infinite, And even when we've sat in his presence for 10,000 years and we've sung his praise, we've sat in the literature of God that we are so bright shining as the sun that we will have just begun our journey. That we understand the life of God that expands in us that Paul is talking about here. The life of God that takes hold of us is infinite in nature. That there's nothing that we can subtract from it that diminishes its quality. I think we believe at times that our sinful state diminishes from God's grace 
and that eventually it will run out. Listen, you serve a God who will never run out of grace because in him is the creation of that grace, like that number for infinity. It goes on and on and on and on and on, ever-expanding. We're going to land the plane here today on this idea of God's grace, of his superabounding grace that Paul writes about here in just a moment. But we have to come to an understanding that, that there really is no limit to the grace of God. No matter what you've gone through, no matter what you're in, no matter what sin you're deep into right now, there is no limit to the grace of God. There is never a place where we are limited or that God's grace is limited to us. There's nothing we can do that takes away from the grace of God to the extent that it diminishes. Just as that song says, amazing grace, that even though we've sat in his presence for 10,000 days, it'll feel as though that moment has just begun. Romans 5 begins and ends with two infinite realities that are needed, one to explain the other. Two infinite realities, the idea of being at peace with God. It's an infinite reality that we will be at, at peace with God on an infinite level forever for the rest of our life. But that only happens when we truly have an understanding of the grace of God, that God's grace that God's grace is so open in our life, so real in our life, so, it's so tangible that it paves the way for peace with God for an eternity. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to chapter 5 of Romans. We'll start with verse 18. We're going to end this chapter. We're going to end our series today. Romans 18, or 5.18 says this, So then, as though one transgressed, uh, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, the result justify, justification of life to all men. For as, though, for as though the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. The law came so that the transgressions would increase, or so the sin would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to the eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's Paul putting a capstone on everything that we're learning. He's starting to unfold the bud and he shows the full picture of the crown jewel of God's creation for you and I to understand that we have right standing with Jesus, that that first line that he gave us, that we could be at peace with God because we have been made righteous through Christ Jesus, how does it happen? Paul reverts back to something that he emphasized in verse 16, and he says there's this tension. There's this tension, a parallel between Adam, the first man, and Jesus, the second Adam. The first man was created as God carved him out of the dust of the ground, God breathed life into his nostrils. And he was so committed in his relationship with God that they literally walked with each other in the cool of the day. They were hand in hand, arm in arm. They had true, unadulterated fellowship. Then the enemy of God, the serpent, Satan, comes into the picture. And he says to man and to woman, if you want to see like God sees, if you really want to see the perspective that God sees, there's one thing he told you not to touch, but let me tell you something. If you take of it, then you will finally see how God sees. He tempted them with this idea that there was something lacking in their relationship and in their perspective, and they gave in to that temptation. They took a bite of the apple. They took a bite of that forbidden fruit. 
And in that moment, they sided with God's arch enemy and sin entered the world. And because sin entered the world, God needed a rescue plan. His rescue plan was his son, Jesus, or the second Adam. If you have your Bibles, again, in verse 18, it says that through this one righteous act, this one giving of self act, this one selfless act, the result is justification. Justification is a big word. It's this idea that that through the faith that we believe in this outworking of love that we shall be and we are, we are constituted as righteous. Righteous, those who have right standing before God. Justified, the idea that just as if I'd never sinned brings me to a perspective, a new gained perspective that I have right standing with God or I've been constituted as righteous. This is to say that there's a pardon or a justification or a sanctifying effect that will be treated as those who have been saved, redeemed, pardoned, justified, sanctified in the sight of God. The word righteous act, if you had to kind of parse it out in the Greek, is really reminiscent of a word that's in Romans chapter five and verse 16 that says to be acquitted or an acquittal. So if I had to rewrite this verse, the Pastor Nathan 101, verse 18 and 19, I would say it this way. So then as through one uh, transgression, the resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the ordinance of acquittal, that word changes a bit, the, the one ordinance of acquittal, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as though the one man's disobe- through the one man's disobedience, there they were made many sinners, even so through the one man's ordinance of acquittal of the one, many would be righteous. This is a different way, a different perspective of looking at it. It's not just the obedience of God. It's not just the obedience of Christ that paved the way for our justification or our our space to be set to right, for us to be set to right as human persons. There's actually a legal process that's happening, an ordinance of acquittal. We know what an ordinance is when a town or a city or a municipality decides to give an ordinance, a new rule that the whole of the community must live by. We have an ordinance so that we're not allowed to put flags out front here in the property because they take away from the visibility of the sign that says 35 miles an hour as people run up Brady Street. Nobody looks at that sign anyway because people run up that street about 55, 65, 70 miles an hour. So it's not like I'm distracting from much, but there's a city ordinance. Can't have a sign out front. So we understand the idea of an ordinance, but of acquittal, do we really understand what the scripture is saying here? A judgment that a person is not guilty of the crime for which the person has been charged. Listen, there is in our life an effect of someone saying that you are guilty for the crimes you've committed, for the crimes of siding with God's arch enemy, for the crime of being a human person enveloped in sin, for the crime of falling prey to sin and temptation. And all of us feel the weight. All of us feel the weight of this judgment. In fact, we know that the adversary, God's arch enemy, that he literally, it says in Revelation, that he literally sits by God's throne, whispering in his ear, that we should be judged. And we feel the weight of that, of the sin of that. Yet the Bible says there's an ordinance, that there's a new found document in our community, in our culture, of our acquittal, that you are not guilty for the crimes that you have been put on trial for. This is a new reality in how we represent the grace of God in our life. That though sin entered the world through one man, 
As Paul so shores up in verse 16 of Romans chapter 5, though sin entered the world through Adam, and from Adam on down, we continue in this pattern of sin. There is an ordinance of acquittal that when Jesus comes on the scene, that he doesn't just free us from the temptation of sin. He doesn't just say, okay, poof, your sins are forgiven. No, it's an ordinance. The whole of creation, the whole of culture must look at us as those who have been made right, set to right. You are not bound by your old story. You are not bound by your old baggage. You are not bound by your old markers. You have been acquitted. If you ever stood on that stand again in front of God, he would say, that sin that you think you're being judged for, I don't see it anymore because you've been forgiven. You've been acquitted of those crimes. This is the baggage that so many of us hold on to. Many of us look at our life in Christ and our prayer time and how we communicate with the God of the universe in a way that we approach a carousel after we get off an airplane. We stand there and we look for our baggage We know the bag because we packed it tight. We know we've written our name on the outside of the tag. We know that's ours. And it's everything within us to go back to that baggage and pick it up and say, God, look, look what I've got. And he's telling you, leave it alone. Let it run around that carousel time and time again because I've already designed for you a new wardrobe. I've already designed for you in the new place that I'm sending you a new wardrobe that has everything in it that you could ever want. It's not missing even your favorite piece of attire that in this new wardrobe are new fittings that will mark you, that will identify you as a new person. The baggage you came in with is something you should leave and let it alone because you've been acquitted of that old lifestyle. There's a new life in Christ that reigns through the grace of God that if we'll just leave our baggage alone, if we'll just let it run around that carousel over and over again like lost luggage and walk out of that scenario with God in tow, that he will present to us a wardrobe that is better fitting, that is made just for us, that sets us to right. You all understand where I'm going? You have been acquitted. No one on the planet, no one in heaven can stand before God and judge you of your past. No one, never, ever, not even yourself. Do you know that when we pray to God and we bring up old and dead sins, the old and past lifestyle, he can't see past the ocular of Jesus. He can't look down through history and look past the scope of his son. So when you say, God, you remember when I did this? He says, no, I see Jesus. But God, you remember my past when I was this person and I couldn't get off the drugs or I couldn't, I couldn't make my relationships work or God, I used to have that foul mouth or God, you know, I just couldn't get past this sin or that sin. When you have been forgiven, when you have been acquitted, when the grace of God is expressed in your life, he looks down through history and only sees Jesus. He doesn't see the sin. He doesn't see your past. We have convinced ourselves because we are so familiar with our past failures. We are so familiar with our past transgressions. We are so familiar with our past self that we have convinced ourselves that that's the light in which God sees us. And we fail to recognize, we fail to recognize that there's been an ordinance stamped in heaven, an ordinance of acquittal, that you are not that person, that you are not held guilty, that you are not held in contempt of this court any longer. 
This is why God can honestly say in verse one, as he inspired Paul to write these scriptures, that you are at peace with God, that through the actions of Jesus, through the righteousness that comes in Christ, you are now at peace. That's why this rosebud is so tightly packed and starts out so small, yet blossoms into a beautiful flower where we have a new understanding of how we communicate with the God of the universe and the relationship that we have. How many of us are so blocked in experiencing the full-on relationship that God has for us because of our past? How many of us feel so blocked in our life because we can't get past the old dead issues that he can't even see anymore? How many of us feel so blocked we don't receive the healing that God intends for us because we can't get past old dead issues How many of us can't seem to fix marriage relationships and and the issues in our marriage because we can't get past the baggage? Listen, let me help all of your relationships. Let me help your relationship at home, your marriage relationship, your, your interpersonal relationships. When someone asks you to forgive them and you honestly say you do, I don't mean you say, yeah, yeah, I forgive you, but I'm really gonna hold this against you till next time. I mean, honestly forgive, especially your spouse. We have to learn to forgive like Jesus did that we throw that away. Don't remember that anymore. That's not the same person that I'm looking at anymore. We don't hold it in our pocket and wait for a moment to throw it out in a sense of judgment. Remember what you did? We let go because of what Christ did in our life. We let go because we are mimicking what Jesus has done in our life. We let go because we are mimicking what the God of the universe set to right in us. You have your Bibles, verse 20 through 21. In this comparison between Adam and Christ is a closed issue as we move on to the end of the story. As we discuss these last two verses, Paul is writing a finish line. Jesus and Adam are no longer in comparison. They're no longer the story of which, or the fulcrum in which the story hinges on. But now we come to a place where there's something that stands in the middle. There's a story that God is writing out in history. It starts with Adam and it ends really honestly with Jesus. But this story has something caught in the middle. The story has the idea of the law, religious systems, religious uh, religious rites and religious structures. The story of the law was was first developed so that God's people could find a way to feel close to him, that they would cut sacrifice and they would honor him with incense and they of offering so that they would feel close to the God of the universe. This law came into light into this narrative, not like a character. Okay, is it on? Nope, there we go. All right, there we go. I felt something weird. I don't know what that was. But there's a story that's being written out and we have to understand the pieces of the puzzle. The law came alongside the plan of God in a very unique way. There's a a Latin phrase up there. I'm not gonna try to read it because my Latin's really, really bad. But it basically has this idea that you enter into this. Love suffers next to each other. We enter into this this relationship. We enter into this covenant. We enter into this connection. 
And the love learns to suffer alongside the other. And so in the life of God's people from Adam on down, as they were trying to find their way back to God, as they were trying to bridge the broken relationship, as they were trying to bridge the chasm, the law entered, the love of God entered alongside of them in the law. And the law was set alongside of them so that it could be a bridge for a time and for a purpose so that it could help them feel as though they're making headway when they're really just running on a treadmill going nowhere. The law was God's expression of love and their expression of love to God. They're doing everything they can within their power to make right what was broken, yet Jesus becomes the ultimate answer. So open in verse 20. The law came in so that the transgressions would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. He starts off his ending notes with this idea that the law came in the middle of this story so that it would expose more and more of sin or transgression. Sounds like a hard statement. Remember, the law is encapsulating God's love for all of humanity to try to draw them closer and closer to him. So this concept of the law breaks down in this idea that the law was set into motion to show us that we would never live up to the standard. All of religious rites and ritual, all religious practices, listen, this church is not about religion. All religious practices inevitably show you how short you come to the yardstick. Inevitably, everything that happens in a religious context shows you that you will never measure up. If it is religion for pure religious sake, it shows you that sin is real, it affects your life, and that you can never measure up on your own. And there's a good, there's a good thing in that. That tension, that, that breakdown, that feelings of, of almost complete failure and shortcoming, there's something very good there. What's very good there is that we recognize that we need a way of escape that isn't on our own efforts, that isn't on our own merit. And that's where the Bible says, where sin increased, grace abound all the more. Or this better phrase, that grace is super abounding. The grace, the grace of God where sin increases in our life, where religion casts a shadow and shows us that we are far from God and that in our own strength, we will never make it up that ladder, that grace abounds and covers the distance. That in every area of life, we feel broken and far from God, grace covers the ground. That when we read scriptures, like Romans chapter five and verse one that says we are to be at peace with God, every moment we feel out of step and out of peace with God, grace is there to cover the ground. That every moment we feel sick in our body and we don't feel the healing virtue of God, that grace abounds all the more. It super abounds. That every moment we feel far from God, for whatever reason, grace abounds. Tense moment in our marriage, grace can abound. That in every moment where we are financially desperate and God has to come through with his miraculous power, grace abounds. That in every lackluster moment of our life where we are not living up to the standard that God has for us, there is grace to super abound, to take us over. This is what it is for the law to have its full working in our life. We don't shudder at religious systems and organizations. We don't shudder at religious practices and blow them off. We let them have their full light and weight in our life. You are just here to show me that I can't measure up, but I know I can't measure up anyway. And I read the end of the story and it doesn't matter because through God's grace, I win anyway. That through God's grace, 
God's grace superabounding in my life, that all of my insufficiencies, all of my deficits are blown away. They are erased. We used to sing hymns and songs that literally said, we are washed as white as snow and nothing could be more truthful. That when we come to God, when we come to Jesus, when the shed blood of Christ is honestly applied to our life, that all of the deficits, they just fade away and all he sees is Jesus in us. If God were to judge you for your sinful past, for your baggage, if God were to judge you for all of the transgressions that have come against him in his word, for every time you failed a religious system or religious structure, if God were to judge you, the first person he would have to judge is Jesus because he's the one that stands in the gap. If God were to turn his back on you in your moment of sin, if God were to turn his back on you the moment you err, if God were to turn his back on you the moment you decided to be less than perfect, he would be turning his back on his son. Nothing in scripture points to the idea that God and Jesus are at odds with each other. From the cross on down, all we see is a unified front, that God is in Jesus showing us his love and that Jesus is the exact embodiment of the God of the universe and that the Holy Spirit comes to infill our life so that this godly divine presence is real and personable and with us every moment of every day. There is nothing in the scripture that says that God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit are at odds. So when we come to a place where God's grace is superabounding, it's not just because Jesus on his lonesome is causing grace to abound. It's because the totality of the person of God is infecting our life and making right what was wrong. To borrow a phrase that you've heard me say many times from one of my favorite theologians, God is setting the world to right in you first. God is setting the entirety of the universe to right in you first. This planet, this people planet cannot be put to right if it's not put to right first through individuals. That he calls you out of the muck and the mire. That he calls you out of places of deficiency. He makes you right so that the world can be set to right. N.T. Wright is a brilliant man. If you have ever an opportunity to read his writings, you should. They're pretty heavy. They're pretty heady. But what he talks about is this idea that God's grace is so real that everything that's broken, everything that's diminishing, everything in our life that is not set to the standard of God will be put to right because of what Jesus did on the cross and it first happens through us. So every moment we hear phrases of God's superabounding grace, it's not for someone else, it's for you. What are you going through right now where you need to apply the superabounding grace of God? What are you going through right now where even maybe sin is creeping up in your heart and you need to squash it with the superabounding grace of God? What in your life is not as it should be and must be set to right? It can only happen through the superabounding grace of God. Verse 21 Sin increased, as we recap from verse 20, and God's grace superabounded, so that as sin reigns in death, even so grace would reign to the righteousness, to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. That grace would reign, that this power of grace would set us to right, that it would reign through righteousness, that we would be in right standing with God. Grace puts you in that place of favor. Grace puts you in that place.
place of the throne room of God. Grace puts you in that place where we can boldly go to the throne room and ask of him just like we would any other person on the planet, any person of means. If right now Bill Gates were standing in front of you ready to open up his checkbook and to write a check and said, the first person who comes up here and asks, I'll write a check for a billion dollars. We would see these seats empty so fast. You'd run to this stage as fast as you could get here. You'd throw little children to the side. I know I might. <laughs> They'll heal later. It's a lot of money. We, we would rush the stage for a chance at that check. Yet God is setting before you the opportunity to cash a check that says everything will be made right. How many of us are running to the throne and accepting the check? God is setting before us a check that says if you'll just, if you'll just cash it, through my grace, everything that's broken, everything that's not as it should be, every moment in your life that's deficient, I will set to right. But so many of us leave the check on the counter and hope that somebody else will pick it up for us. So many of us leave the check on the counter and say, God, but you don't understand my past. And he's saying, you're right, I don't, I forgave it, it's gone. But God, you don't understand who I used to be. You're right, I don't. The person I see is Jesus and not you anyway. But God, you don't understand who I used to be. You're right. I can't because I can't see past my son. When will we honestly come to the place in our faith life where we let his grace superabound? That in every broken area, every shattered dream, every diminishing moment, that God's grace will abound. We don't wonder if we're good enough because we know we're not. That we don't wonder if we're perfect enough because we know we'll never reach that pinnacle. Listen, this is not about not having good Christian character. This is not about sinning and sinning and sinning and habitually sinning and not asking and not repenting. This is about understanding that whatever you've gone through, wherever you've come from, whatever sin has plagued your life, it does not define you. You are not defined by sin. You are not defined by your past. And even if you were, his word is clear that when you were sinning, when you were transgressing, you were siding with God's arch enemy. He died for you anyway. He saw the depletion in your life and said, I don't care. I want them back. I want them part of my family. I need them in the fold. When will we come to a place where we honestly and openly lay down our walls and say, God, can't do this. Let your grace superabound. God, I can't make it another step. Let your grace superabound. God, I can't fix it on my own. God, let your grace superabound. I believe what Paul is emphasizing as he ends this chapter, and maybe this chapter wasn't all that exciting for you, but it's something that I go to every year, multiple times a year. I read through, I study through. Why? Because it tells us the story, the secret sauce behind Christianity. If anyone ever asks you what Christianity is all about, lead them to Romans chapter five. Read the chapter with them. Show them that even in their sin and in their trespasses, that God saw so much beauty in them that he died for them.